We're going to be talking uh, this semester, when Dave called me, he said, uh, would you be interested in doing a, a little something or other uh, on, on a particular topic? And, uh, you know, maybe something kind of uh, small and narrow. And I said, sure, how about Doctor of God? And um, he said, yeah, that'll be fine. But uh, as things tend to go, I, I had this experience a couple of weeks ago that's now fairly routine with me. Um, if I submit a, a manuscript to, to a publisher, a book that I've written, and I'll, I'll be excited about the title and everything that I've, I've done there to try to orchestrate that. And I, I've, I'm now finding out I get this email back about a month after the manuscript goes in, and it's, it starts this way. Um, the titling committee has met for uh, quite a while, and uh, while we like what you've done, you know, so the, the idea is we don't like your title. It's a nice way of saying you don't know how, you, how to market things. And um, so they, they change the titles uh, routinely on my books, and I'm used to that now. So I got the call, you know, after we decided we'd do this. Um, yeah, you're going to be doing some on Doctrine of God. Um, you mind if we just call it Who is God? I said, no, that's okay. But um, let, let's just uh, let's, let's do a little straight talk express here for a minute. Um, you're going to be learning doctrine in here, no matter what the title. And that's an important thing for Christians to know. Doctrine is simply the teaching of Scripture. And so while it may not be a great marketing tool, it may sound a little dry to call it doctrine of God, that's really what we're going to be talking about. And we're going to be learning some new things in here. Um, so if, if, we, if we go along in a, in a week or two or three and you're thinking to yourself, well, I've never heard of that before, that's kind of what we're supposed to be doing is talking about things that maybe will be new to some of you and hopefully trying to help us understand from God's own revelation why those things are important. Now, a couple other um, things just to kind of set the groundwork here before we uh, get into uh, the beginning of our discussion. Uh, Historically, at least since the Reformation, there are uh, two primary areas of Christian teaching that are thought to be, I think rightly thought to be, foundational to everything else that we say and do. Two primary areas that, in a sense, really have to be there from the beginning before you begin to talk about or think about anything else in in the Christian faith. What would those two areas be? Would anybody want to hazard, maybe some of you know, would you want to to tell us what those are? What, what, What would the first one be? Let me give you a hint. Think about um, a, a good, solid, reformed uh, confession, Westminster Confession, uh, Heidelberg, things like that. What, what issues, uh, Belgic Confession, a little bit different, I'm not helping you here, but Westminster Confession, let's stay there. What's the first chapter? Scripture, Scripture exactly. The first thing that the church has recognized, and here we're talking particularly about the Protestant church, the first thing the church has recognized is that you have got to have, we have got to have, revelation from God in order to know anything, anything at all. And the reason Scripture is the foundation of everything else we say is because we don't know the world rightly, certainly not God rightly, unless He tells us who He is and what the world is like and what we're like. We have to peer into Scripture, don't we, to understand our own hearts properly. And we can't even evaluate ourselves properly unless God says, this is what you're like. And then we think to ourselves, that really is what I'm like. I'm not sure I would have come up with that. I think I'm a little better than that. But no, Scripture says this is what you're like. So Scripture is 
fundamentally the place on which we have to stand. And if we don't stand there, folks, we drown. There's no other place to stand. Now, that doesn't mean we know Scripture exhaustively. We never will. And it doesn't mean that there aren't things in Scripture that will remain conundrums for us. There are, of course. But we cannot come to Scripture suspiciously and say to ourselves, yeah, I wonder, is this really something worthy of my trust? Right? You'll hear it in the sermon if you haven't heard it already. What was the first temptation? How did the first temptation begin in history? Yeah, the serpent. Um, you know, kind of a Columbo sort of thing. Uh, just, just one question here I'm kind of struggling with. Has, has God said, really, that you can't eat? You see, now that's not a question for information. That's a question of suspicion. And we live in a culture, if I can be more specific, a Christian culture in which suspicion now is all the rage. The more suspicious and skeptical you are, the more avant-garde you are. You dare not approach the Bible that way as a Christian. You cannot approach it that way. The minute you come to Scripture and say, has God really said... I I really need to find this out. This is what God... What happens? Suppose you conclude, well, okay, yeah, okay, he said that. Not sure he said this other thing, but he certainly said that. Then what happens? Who's the authority? You are. You are. And you know what happens? This is how subtle it is. You know what happens? All of a sudden, the authority is taken away from Holy Scripture, and you now preside over the Word of God to determine what's good, What's not good, what you take, what you don't take. Do not fall into that trap because you'll die as a Christian. We don't have that option. And that's why in the Protestant Reformation it was said, you come to Scripture as a foundation for everything else that you're going to know. Everything else, there it is. It's in the Word of God. That's the first one. What's chapter 2 in the Confession? It begins to talk about God. Those two elements of our Christian faith, and they really go hand in hand, don't they? The Bible, how we know things, and God, who is the ultimate and only real eternal existence, those two things have to be put together biblically in order for us to begin to know anything else. And so what we're dealing with in this quarter, in this time in our Sunday school, what we're dealing with is foundational to your Christian faith. We must know from what God has said who He is. Now, we don't know these things. We don't want to know these things simply to be smarter. If if that's our ultimate goal, uh, we're in the wrong place. Why do we want to know God better? Knowledge is linked inextricably with worship. Did you know that? It is. The question comes uh, oftentimes, do, uh, do Jews and Muslims worship the same God? Right? That's a doctrine of God question. Do Jews and Muslims worship the same God? What do you think? Absolutely not. 
That's sort of what I think. Straight Talk Express over here. Absolutely not. <laughs> and why not? Because if you're going to worship God when you're in that sanctuary, if you have an idea of God that He is utterly and only transcendent, unable to condescend, certainly not triune, then the God that you're worshiping is a figment of your imagination. It is an idol, and it is not the God of Holy Scripture. Now turn that around positively. To the extent that you know God, as He's revealed Himself biblically, to that extent are you able to worship Him in spirit and in truth. So if we have small knowledge of God, our worship will be small. We'll, we'll be concerned in our worship about how we're feeling or about how long it is or if we've gotten it over with. You know how children tend to think, and adults think this way, but we quit talking about it because we get mature. But children tend to think, is, is heaven really going to be kind of eternal church? Are we really just going to have to sit still and be quiet and not move and, and just kind of stand and sit and sometimes sing and listen? Is that, is that church? How many adults think that way? You don't have to raise your hand. <clears throat> we tend to think that way, don't we? But now we have to start thinking more biblically about that. The new heavens and the new earth will be the eternal presence of God with us forever and ever. The Lord and the Lamb with His people forever and ever. You will want to do nothing but worship and sing and praise together with all the saints there. Why? Because you will know God by sight for the first time. Now see, what we're doing here, what you do in the sanctuary, is a glimpse of that. When you sing the hymns, when you hear the Word of God preached, you're getting to know something better. Know God better by virtue of doing that. So the point I'm trying to make is, no matter what view you might have of seminaries and seminary professors, it really is our intent to impart knowledge for the purpose of worship, not for the purpose of knowledge alone. So that part in this quarter is really your responsibility. We're going to talk about things in here. We're going to discuss who God is and all sorts of things about Him, but your responsibility, my responsibility, is to take those things that we learn and incorporate those into our worship of God personally and corporately so that by the end of this, you really should be worshiping God better because you know Him better. That's the goal. All right, let's um, begin then to think about, uh, now I just want to uh, give a, a couple of um, ideas about why it is, uh, I think, important for us to study who God is. And I want to start by looking at John chapter 17. John chapter 17, you're all familiar with this uh, chapter, the uh, high priestly prayer of our Savior. 
17, 1 to 3. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, there are a number of things, as you know, going on uh, in this passage, and we won't be able to uh, discuss all of them, obviously. But this is, again, Jesus' high priestly prayer, his petition to his heavenly Father. And I think it's important for us uh, to see the starkness of John's language here in verse 3. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is, what Jesus is saying here is that eternal life is so related to our knowledge of God that Christ here in his prayer virtually identifies the two things. We're to think of our knowledge of God here as identical to life eternal. Now again, as I was saying, that shouldn't surprise us. We were created to glorify God and to enjoy Him, and there is absolutely no way to do that if we don't know Him. How do you glorify something you don't know? How do you enjoy something you don't know. And our goal in living, both in this life and the next, is to glorify God. Here is going to be the troublesome thing for some of you, perhaps, in this course. If you're like some of the students at Westminster, here's the troublesome thing that we have to get settled in our own hearts. It's very difficult. We know it intellectually, so it's no surprise to any of you. But getting it settled in our own hearts is more difficult. Here it is. You are not the center of the universe. I know. We know that. Of course we're not. We tell our kids that. You think the world revolves around you? We say that all the time. And they say, I kind of thought it might. And now we say, no, of course not. But now here is the truth of Scripture. The world revolves around the glory of God. To the extent that we glorify Him, to that extent we are doing what we are created and redeemed to do. To the extent that we don't glorify and honor Him, to that extent we are out of our element. We are in the wrong place. And so what we are meant to do in this life is to know God better and better because in doing that, we get a taste of eternal life. We begin to know what eternal life is. It is knowledge of God, understanding the character of God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So we read in uh, the book of Revelation, for example, chapter 22, verse 3, as we have that great uh, description there of the new heavens and the new earth. By the way, let me just say something parenthetically. Heaven is not our home. It's not our home. Heaven is the transition to our home. 
And that's it's our home until our real home is ready for us because our real home is the new heavens and the new earth. We've got to get out of this mode of thinking that we get uh, even now on uh, television sometimes that what happens after we die is everything is sort of ethereal and cloudy with our clouds and we get wings like angels and there we are for eternity, maybe more wings depending on how many bells ring, all those kinds of things <laughs> that we learn from the media. No, that is a transition point to our eternal home, which is the new heavens and the new earth. We will be someplace for eternity, not ethereal and without bodies. So in Revelation 22, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. You see that? It's just, it's just packed with biblical meaning. We can't delve into it in any detail here, but nothing will be accursed in that place. Why? Because the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it in such a way that the very presence of God will wipe away any presence of evil there. And then John says, His servants will worship Him. That's almost an aside. That's just to say, of course, this is what we'll be doing. We will worship Him. We won't have to conjure up a sort of feeling to do that. We won't even have to be commanded to do that. We will do that. That will be our automatic reaction when we are there in the presence of God and the Lamb. And then verse 4, they will see His face. You see, at that point in the new heavens and the new earth, faith is gone because no longer needed, because we will walk for eternity by sight in seeing the God whom we have worshipped here. Scripture indicates uh, that it is the very knowledge of God and of His presence that makes worship of Him our automatic response. See, I think it's true, and this is another thing it's difficult for us uh, sometimes to grasp, to the extent that we understand the presence of God in worship, to that extent do we worship. If we come into the sanctuary and we're uh, bleary-eyed and and tired and our, our minds are going different directions and we haven't thought about the fact that God has condescended here this day to meet with us and accept our praise. And here He is. Now, He's always with us, but He says He comes in a special way when the church of God comes together to worship Him. If we get that, then we begin to understand what we do in that hour because we know Him better in that way. What does Scripture say will happen? I'm thinking now uh, particularly of Philippians chapter 2. What does Scripture say will happen when Christ comes back? Is it going to be business as usual? Um, Some people noticed and said, hey, look, here comes somebody from the clouds and other people are just carrying on their own business. No, the way Paul presents it, it's a cosmic event, isn't it? 
I, mean, I, I don't know how God's going to accomplish this exactly, but I don't have to know because He can do whatever He wants. So there's going to be a cosmic event at the coming of Christ, and what does Paul tell us happens at that time? Every knee will bow. See, some not so willingly. Thinking to themselves, if I can understate it, uh oh. See, for the first time, they're going to realize this is the one I should have been worshiping all along. But at that point, it's too late. But nevertheless, the knee will bow. And see, it's, it's an automatic for these people. Paul's telling us every knee will bow, every tongue confess. Willingly or unwillingly confessing the same thing, that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Why? Because we'll see Him in all His glory. Read Revelation chapter 1, when the glorified Christ visits the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos. John doesn't say, hey, thanks for coming, it's lonely out here. <laughs> what does he do? He, he bows down, he can't even look because of the sheer glory of the Son of God who reigns now in heaven. Now, that glorified Christ is coming back. The day is already set on the calendar. We don't know what it is, but it's there. The day, the time, and the year. It's set. He's coming. Just as certain as you're in here, He's coming. And He's coming in a glorified state. And Scripture tells us, every knee will bow and tongue confess. Why? Because when you're in the presence of Almighty God, as He's visible to us in Jesus Christ, you will want to do nothing but worship Him. Worship Him. And it's that knowledge of God. This is what Jesus is saying in His high priestly prayer. It's that knowledge of God that is itself eternal life. The eternal life that we have now by faith in Christ and that we will experience in heaven and in the new heavens and the new earth. Now there's more that we could uh, say here. There are uh, mysteries uh, here, as there will be throughout our semester as we think about these things. How can it be that Christ the Son is now praying to the Father and all of these uh, relationships that go on uh, within the Godhead? And we'll discuss uh, some of that as we move along. We won't go into that here. I did want to mention, though, that um, J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, which, by the way, if you want to um, read something, you haven't, if you haven't read it yet, or even if you have, it's worth a reread. That's just a classic and well, well worth uh, reading uh, if you haven't. It's just a tremendous, uh, tremendous analysis of God and His character and attributes. Uh, Packer, in that book, uh, notes two reasons why the knowledge of God is so important. The first reason, uh, he says, is that the spirit of the age spawns great thoughts of man and leaves room only for small thoughts of God. Now, Packer wrote that, I think I'm remembering right, uh, wrote that in the late 60s. But that spirit of the age that he mentions there is the spirit of any age, isn't it? Because it's the essence of sin for us to spawn great thoughts of ourselves and small thoughts of God. That's what sin 
causes us to do oftentimes. That's why it's difficult for us really to apply the fact that we're not the center of the universe. Because in our sinful state, we tend naturally to focus on ourselves. And the only solution to that is to shift our focus time and time again. And this has to be a deliberative act for us as Christians to shift our focus to knowing God. As long as we continue to focus on ourselves, we miss the glory of knowing God better. So we want to try to resist the spirit of the age and turn it around so that we have great thoughts of God and smaller thoughts of ourselves. In that vein, some of you know, uh, as John Calvin began to write his Institutes, he began with this, uh, I think, uh, so insightful phrase. He says, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, knowledge of God and of ourselves. Two parts, knowledge of God and of ourselves. Now, Calvin goes on to uh, explicate that, to uh, tell us what he means uh, by uh, starting in that way. And what he means is simply this. How do you understand yourself best in terms of who you are? You understand yourself best when you see yourself in light of who God is. Right? If you want to really exalt yourself, then start comparing yourself to other people. Because it's, it's pretty easy for us to find enough deficiencies in other people so that we can feel uh, pretty good about who we are. And that tends to be a sort of standard mode for us, doesn't it? But we have to get out of autopilot, uh, Calvin's saying, and compare ourselves to God. And what do we see immediately? We see what Isaiah saw in the temple, don't we? In Isaiah chapter 6. We, we see immediately that God is altogether holy, thrice holy, and that we are people of unclean lips, as Isaiah says. We are a sinful people. Now, if we're going to understand ourselves rightly, Calvin is saying, we have got to do that by understanding ourselves in understanding God. The more you know God better, the more you begin to know yourself better. And you begin to see why it is that sin is so horrendous. I don't know if it's this way in the PCA. I haven't looked, but in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, when you join a particular congregation, one of the questions that you have to answer in the affirmative is this question. Do you abhor and humble yourself before God? Do you abhor and humble yourself before God? Now, now think about that. Think about that in the context of everything else you're getting bombarded with out there in the world. Uh, how many of the self-help programs say the goal here is that you abhor yourself? Here's what we want to try to accomplish in the next few weeks. We want you to abhor yourself so that you can get better. Yeah, but you see, that's the way it is in Christianity, isn't it? Because we see ourselves not in relation to everyone else. We see ourselves in the context of the holiness of God. 
Do you abhor and humble yourself, not just in and of itself, before God? You see, knowledge of God, knowledge of self. And the more we understand who God is, the more we begin to see what's in here. And the more we see what's in here, what remains in here, even after our conversion. If we know God better, the more we hate it and want to cut it off and get rid of it because we know that it offends a holy God. Do you abhor and humble yourself before God? The second thing uh, that Packer mentions, are we meant to be through at 10.30 or so? Yeah, what, I, I don't know how, you know, there's, there's always a culture of uh, different things in different churches, I find. And um, sometimes when people say worship starts at 9, it really starts at 9.15. And sometimes <laughs> starts, sometimes Sunday school goes till 10.30, sometimes 10.15. So if, I, if I'm going past uh, what I'm supposed to be going, one of you, well, Mr. Dabney's here, he'll tell me. <clears throat> Dick will mention to me. All right, the second thing uh, and last thing that Packer mentions here in his book, Knowing God, is that uh, Christian minds have been uh, confused because of their lack of knowledge of God. And Packer's point here is one that I was uh, talking about a minute ago. He says, uh, Christians begin to ask the skeptical questions. Now, again, this is all the rage. Uh, particularly among Christians these days, a very dangerous trend that I hope will, by God's grace, go away soon. But Christians begin to ask whether or not we can trust our Bibles. Uh, Is Jesus really God? Uh, Can miracles really happen? Those kinds of questions, uh, Packer says, those questions come because our knowledge of God is so minute. We, We don't have a knowledge of God that is able to contain those questions and understand them in the proper way. Now, as I've said before, that skepticism that Packer writes about in the late 60s has only grown in decades following. So that now, in the church, I'm not talking here, we're not talking about all those bad people out there, we're talking about the people in here, in the church, are encouraged, if they're going to be, uh, as I hear so often, Uh, intellectually honest, we're encouraged to begin to question the Bible and the character of God. And that, uh, I hope uh, you'll begin to see, uh, is death to Christianity. We are meant to be people who bow before the authority of God and His Word. That's what it means to come to Him in faith. And then once we do that, you see, the sanctification process, the process of growing in holiness, is a process of knowing God better and better and better. You see, here's, here's part of the problem, I think, um, I shouldn't say it's a problem. Here, here, here's the scenario in Christianity. Um, if, if you want to become a, a doctor, or, or let's even go, go one better. This is for Roger Harrell's sake. If you want to become a lawyer, you want to become a lawyer, can you just say, I have now declared that I'm a lawyer. I have faith that I'm a lawyer, and I'll practice law. Can you just do that? Well, no, I don't think so. 
I think you have to go to school. I think you have to learn. And all of that learning is necessary to get to the point where you can now be a doctor or a lawyer. You see, it's the reverse in Christianity. You profess faith in Christ, and normally at that point, we know very little. And yet you are a Christian now, accepted by God, adopted into His family for eternity. You see, then what happens sometimes is that we can become complacent about what we should be doing. That is learning more and more and more because we're already in. See, if you could declare yourself to be a lawyer and just be a lawyer, you wouldn't go to school to be a lawyer. Why learn anything? You're now practicing. You're in the profession. Well, when you are a Christian, you are practicing Christianity. You are in the family of God. And so it's easy sometimes for us to become complacent about learning and getting to know God better. And when we do that, Packer's saying, we are setting ourselves up for the skeptical posture, for coming to Scripture and saying, you know, I see some discrepancies here, and I'm not too happy with those, and unless I can resolve those, I don't believe I'm going to believe. Or we begin to read uh, Scripture and we say, that just doesn't make sense to me. And until it does make sense to me, I won't have it. I won't have it. See, this is how liberal Christianity gets going. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, I've been doing this orthodox thing for a long time. I think I'm going to go ahead and do the liberal thing. I'm going to announce today I've decided to be a theological liberal. That's not the way it happens. You look at how it happens historically. There's one account of a New England minister who was in his pulpit for 69 years. Now listen to that. It's not that he lived that long. He was in the same pulpit for 69 years. He began preaching the good Reformed Christian doctrines of the faith. He ended his ministry 69 years later as what is now called the first Unitarian minister in New England. Unitarian, rejected the Trinity. Why? Can't get my mind around that. You see, as he worked through these texts of Scripture, he wasn't knowing God better, but he was becoming skeptical. Uh, This whole thing about original sin, God's going to hold me accountable for what Adam did. I'm deciding that's not fair. That's what I'm deciding. And I'm saying to God, that's not fair. You find a better way, I'm not going to believe that. What? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, not three gods, one God, three persons, all completely God, and yet just, uh uh-uh, I don't know anything like that. And until you can make that understandable to my mind, God, I'm not going to have any of it. See how it happens? That's how liberal Christianity begins. And then pretty soon, the skeptical posture is, I like this part of the Bible, not too happy about this part, so it's the, the so-called cut-and-paste method. I'm going to snip this off, don't like that, keep this in, the love part, like the love part, don't like the wrath part, wrath's bad, love's good. So now, now my Bible consists of parts of the Sermon on the Mount in 1 Corinthians 13. Read through the Bible in a year, pretty easy. <laughs> Word a day and you've got it. But you see, that's the problem. Now we have a, a, a movement in uh, what is uh, called evangelical Christianity, we have a movement called open theism. 
Any of you ever heard of open theism? What is open theism? It's a group of uh, scholars who have decided uh, a number of different things, but on the list is uh, God is not sovereign. That is, He's not in control. Now, that's nothing completely new, and none of this is completely new in the history of the church, but the Arminians would say that God is not sovereign, at least when it comes to salvation. But they've not only decided God is not sovereign, uh, He's not omniscient, omni-all, science, knowledge. He's not all-knowing. He's not omniscient. That is, God can't know the future. He's not all-powerful. As a matter of fact, as one uh, author has put it in his book, God takes risks. He creates. He sort of wrings his hands. I hope those people will get this and come my way. If they don't, I may have to go to plan B or C or D. So they're denying now in the context of, now this is not, they're not saying we have declared ourselves to be liberals. Liberals have done this all along. But they say we're evangelical Christians. We believe the Bible. But you see, we can't have a God who's sovereign and who knows everything and who's all-powerful. Why? Because it doesn't fit with the way the world is. Look at all this stuff going on around here. Look at all the evil is here. God's just not sovereign. They're trying to make sense of the world in their own way. And so they have created a God in their own image. Now again, this is an evangelical Christianity. So, we want to avoid the skeptical posture. We want to know God better in order to worship Him better that He and He alone would be glorified. Now, I'm going to uh, stop there because uh, some have walked out and my feelings are hurt. (laughs) So I need to go to my quiet place and cry a little bit. But before... I do that. Let me just see if there are any questions. No, no question about it. You're exactly right. And, you know, I, I work in a business at the seminary where we're, that's what we're, we're trying to do. We, we try to train uh, students to understand Scripture better. But my, my point is this. There's a reason why the Word of God says in Genesis 3.1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast. And the point, part of the point that's being made there is that the temptation to cross the line from good questions, and there are many, about Scripture. What, what does this mean? What is this saying? Why is this put together this way? I'm having trouble working through that. Th- that's okay. You see that in the Psalms. You see that all over Scripture. That question to, has God really said? He's three in one. Has God really said? You know, that, that's a very subtle transition, isn't it? And the way that it's asked, sometimes can give away what's going on in the heart, sometimes not. But the point is, we don't come to the Word of God as a foundation of our faith. We don't come to the Word of God and say, you know, I wonder, is this the Word of God? I'm not happy because it's been translated. I'm not happy because we don't have the original manuscripts anymore, which were inerrant and infallible. I don't like that. How in the world can God preserve through history providentially His actual Word so that He can communicate to the church throughout? I'm not sure He's able to do that. It's too much going on. Those kinds of questions are the ones that are being asked now in our current context. And my point is, part of the answer to that is, unless you come to Scripture understanding and believing that it is the Word of God, those questions become illegitimate. 
You start with the fact it's the Word of God, then you ask the questions. You don't ask the question and say, if I get the right answer, I will decide then that it is the Word of God. You see, and this is why, let me just say it gently here, this is one of the reasons that Roman Catholicism is easier for many to buy because the church tells you what Scripture is and that's why they've got a, a bit of a different uh, configuration of the books. of the, the church decides this. They say, we determine now that this is the Word of God. And since we've said that, you don't need to read it. We'll take care of that. But you just need to know this is the Word of God. I was raised in a Roman Catholic church. This is, this is how, how it went when I grew up. So that the authority is invested where? In the church. In the church. Not in the Word of God. See, and that is... Subtle difference, but it is a huge difference in terms of our faith. So, yes, absolutely. We work with the questions, especially with uh, our children and, and even adults who are considering Christianity. We work with those. We consider those. We take those as legitimate. But at some point we say to somebody, if you don't start here, you drown. There's no other place to stand. There's no foundation available for us. But here, without my Bible, I die. See, we've got to communicate that as well. All right, let me pray and we shall be finished. Our God and our Father, we praise you this morning and we thank you that you are God and there is no other. We thank you that in your sovereign wisdom you have seen fit to redeem us in Christ. You have drawn us to this place that we might worship your holy name. We pray, O Lord, that you might teach us even this morning in our worship what it means to know you better. Help us, O Lord, and sanctify us. Set us apart that we might be holy even as you are holy so that you and you alone would be honored and glorified for Christ's sake. Amen.